Welcome to Season 5 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's Festival of Ideas since 1997. We're celebrating 25 years of community connection, and I want to give special thanks to our amazing volunteers who make it all possible, and to thank you for supporting the festival, authors, booksellers, and each other. We conclude Season 5 of Writers' Festival Radio with a conversation between Stephen W. Beattie, critic and founder of the website That Shakespearean Rag, and John Lawrence, whose latest book, Dream States, Smart Cities, Technology, and the Pursuit of Urban Utopias just won the 2022 Basili Prize. Here's their conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. My name is Stephen Beattie. I'm a uh, reviewer and critic in Stratford, Ontario. I run the website That Shakespearean Rag, and it is my pleasure to be here for the Ottawa Writers Festival podcast to talk with John Lawrence, who is uh, an expert on urban planning, on uh, public policy, and has written numerous books uh, on the subject, a lot of them focusing on Toronto. He also edits the Utopia series for Coach House Books. And his latest book is called Dream States, Smart Cities, Technology, and the Pursuit of Urban Utopias. John, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much. Not at all. Uh, it's my pleasure. And uh, this is a subject that has fascinated me for quite some time, especially given the fact that I spent most of my life in Toronto, though I'm now a resident in Stratford. I was in Toronto during the period when Sidewalk Labs was having its, uh, I'll, I'll use the polite term negotiations to uh, to create a smart city on the, um, the waterfront in Toronto. And I'd like to talk about that in a little bit more detail uh, a little bit later on. But I think a good place to start because this book is so dense and it deals with so many different aspects of urban planning. Uh, it brings in elements of um, transportation, it brings in elements of policing, it brings in elements of surveillance, income equality, social justice, all of these things are sort of packed into the idea of smart cities. And I find that when you're talking about things like this, that that have so many different policy aspects, it's a good idea to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing right from the jump. So I wonder if you could start by explaining what your concept of a smart city is, what makes a city smart? Uh Okay, well, this is this is actually the sixty-four thousand dollar question. And, um, before I answer it, um, I will say that there's like a hot debate among academics and you know people who kind of watch the smart city space about what exactly we're talking about when we're talking about smart cities. Um, and just to give you a bit of an overview of the terms of the debate, some some people talk about smart cities as being you know. Uh, smart in the, you know, in the sense that there's a lot of knowledge that is, you know, living in the city, like there are places that attract knowledge workers. Others, you know, sort of conceptualize it as very technologically focused. Uh, what I focused on in the book, and what I think is the, you know, the core idea behind the way we talk about smart cities is the sort of the merger, or the the overlay of a bunch of different digital technologies on urban space that are ostensibly designed to kind of, you know, address urban issues, quote unquote, uh, you know, congestion, traffic, uh, environmental issues, all of these things. And the idea 
fundamentally is that you know if you can create these digital systems and deploy enough sort of sensors and you know sort of eyes and ears in public space that you could gather sufficient amounts of data like very large sets of data and then use those to improve the way cities function and so that's essentially the idea behind smart cities um as commercialized and you know as we've seen over the last 15 years or so right and I, I, one of the big problems it seems to me and maybe we can talk about this in a little bit more detail um is the idea that in order to implement these smart cities you've got to partner with a tech company like google or alphabet uh, the google parent right now um which um own sidewalk labs the, the the company that tried to develop keyside on the waterfront in toronto and and their priorities are not necessarily going to be the same as say a municipal government's priorities or an urban planner's priorities or even the priorities of the people who are going to have to be living in these environments is that correct yeah so the issue with sidewalk labs in particular was that it was a tail wagging the dog scenario right uh, if you go back to the beginning of the whole smart cities branding move what you saw were you know large tech companies that were trying to place their you know, their technologies, their hardware and their software with, you know, local or regional governments. Um, and that's not really such a new idea. I mean, you know, IBM mainframes were part of, you know, government in the 60s and 70s. So that that notion of procurement, which is sort of at the heart of some of the smart city um, uh, program is not new. And it should not be sort of seen as threatening inherently. I mean, governments buy all sorts of stuff. Some of it is good, some of it is not so good, uh, uh, but that's a dynamic that exists. What we saw happening sort of, you know, as the smart city movement kind of gathered momentum and attracted capital is that, um, you know, developers were partnering with these tech companies to say, okay, well, we're going to do something from the ground up and we're going to, we're going to equip these urban places, some of which we're going to just build from scratch with all of these technologies. Uh, and that's where you get into the towing, the dog scenario, right. where the, the objectives of the technology companies are sort of leading the, the way for everybody, everything else. I mean, technology is not in and of itself a negative thing, right? And one of the things that interests me is you open your book by going back in history and talking about the various technologies that have made cities possible. You talk about electricity, you talk about the telephone, you talk about sewage, um, you know, which is which is something that that you know we sort of take for granted, but I'd never considered how important that is to you know making a functional city. What essentially makes the idea of smart cities different from any earlier iteration of urban planning using earlier versions of analog technology? So the long history of technologies that bear on urban spaces uh, is primarily, though not exclusively, uh, about civil engineering and about, about it's it's a very problem-solving uh, based approach, right? right. The, there were there were places that were, you know, dealing with terrible air quality or, uh, you know, water bodies that were so inundated with human waste and sewage that they were, you know, they were unusable and they they smelled. And so, so you get technologies such as, you know, wastewater and water mains and, the, you know, all of those kind of civil engineering uh, solutions that 
you know, that are eventually sort of built out within cities and enable us to live as we do, right? I mean, sure. everybody uses the bathroom, everybody uses sidewalks, which are made of concrete, which are made of, you know, which represent a technology. The difference with smart city technology is that it, it there's a sort of a quantum leap in the ability of these technologies to gather information. So our earlier generations of technologies were not, um, they didn't inf they didn't gather information right. primarily they right. they were sort of they were infrastructure in a physical sense and the smart city technology is also infrastructure it's digital infrastructure um, but it is capable of it's capable of gathering and retaining information um, and then we have to start talking about what you do with that information right a conventional bridge that passes over a ravine doesn't know who's driving over it or walking over it. But, you know, once you start adding sensors and, um, you know, you can begin to sort of understand, um, you know, some things that are important, you know, how much load is on that bridge, you know, how much traffic is passing over it. But, you know, maybe also, you know, information that's a bit more questionable and doesn't necessarily need to be collected. Um, and, you know, I always, I always sort of compare this to you know, your phone or your laptop, right? Like most people, you know, who aren't complete geeks, uh, <laughs> use just a small percentage of the capabilities of these devices. I mean, yeah. they're, you know, they have an incredible amount of capability to do all sorts of things. And this is what smart city technology does. It's capable of so many different things. And, you know, in the hands of governments, we have to be careful that you know, we're giving them authority to, you know, use these technologies without totally understanding what they do. Well, I think the hands of government is one thing. And I certainly agree with you that, you know, we have to be very careful to make sure that, um, you know, the, 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 um, the people who are in the position to set policy and they, you know, have power of, of, you know, um, the, our freedom and our rights, um, you know, the, the police as well, who have the power to, you know, stop and arrest us uh, on the street. We have to be careful to ensure that they don't have, um, you know, any more information than is absolutely necessary for them to do their jobs. But I also worry about, uh, and maybe even speak to this, the notion that private companies like Google, like Apple, like um, uh, Amazon, and so on and so forth, are also mining that data and have in, in, in a smart city situation, they would have access to so much more data than they already do, none of which we've consented to give them. Right. It's, I mean, it's a huge problem. And it's, uh, it's not transparent. Uh, we don't know how a lot of this stuff works. Um, and it's very, it's not at all clear, you know, when, uh, you know, when a government is partnering with one of these companies, what becomes of that data? And it's, it, you know, there, there are examples, there was an example of a sister company to Sidewalk Labs that Google owned in Britain, um, that did a deal with the National Health Service. Um, and, you know, it was initially cast as, you know, you know, a partnership where Google would be providing some service, but it turns out that private health records were transferred, were ended up in Google's possession, right. which, uh, which is really problematic in, you know, a thousand different ways. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, I'm just going to come back to my bridge example for a second. Sure. Uh, a bridge, we all know what the bridge does. When we build the bridge, it's got a very specific purpose. It doesn't turn into something that does something else that we didn't anticipate. Uh, 
it doesn't, you know, there are no unintended consequences with a bridge. The bridge fords a valley or a stream or whatever, and people pass over it. And so we understand when we, uh, you know, we might hire a construction company or a private engineering firm to design that bridge, but we know what we're getting at the end of it. Whereas right. with the smart city technology, that connection between, uh, you know, intention and application is much dodgier. Um, and there are examples, they're pretty interesting and salient examples of where, you know, governments have gone in kind of wide eyed and, um, you know, you know, they, they were sold on the, you know, the promise. And, um, and then it turns out that these technologies did something completely unintended and it created a whole set of downstream problems. I mean, we saw that in, in with sidewalk labs, but there are other examples where it's actually come to fruition and, you know, a set of devices was acquired. It was put to use in ways that nobody expected. And then there was a big blowback. How do you think that that governments or cities that are entering into contracts with private companies to build smart cities can forestall things like that? For example, um, you use the you use the example of traffic lights uh, in a city and and smart technology, uh, AI driven technology and so on can monitor traffic patterns and can adjust traffic lights in right. real time to ensure the smooth flow of traffic. That seems like a pretty good idea. At the same time, if those same sensors are taking pictures of your license plate and know where you're going or are taking pictures of pedestrians and know where they are at any given time, that seems more invasive. How do you get the benefit while also preventing the downside, the unintended consequences? Well, I think that, I mean, there are a couple of ways of answering this question. <clears throat> First of all, um, you know, municipalities and local governments are set up to do a set of tasks that we pretty much understand. Uh, you know, when confronted with it, evaluating something as complicated as like some of these smart city technologies, they don't have the chops to do it. They, you know, so the first thing you want to do is make sure that the, you know, the the entity that's buying into buying these, you know, systems or is entering into these partnerships has the, you know, in like in-house capability to understand what they're doing. Uh, there's also, there's a process that exists in the, you know, in the software industry, um, you know, called white knights. And essentially there are people who are hired to, you know, try to break into secure systems. And, right. You know, they, I mean, they're, they're, they're essentially testing the, uh, you know, testing, you know, different types of devices, different types of security protocols and so on, and looking for weaknesses. And I think that there's something to be learned um, from that uh, function as governments get into the, get into bed with these companies, right? Because they have to really kind of scope out the ways that this, the, these technologies can be misused. And let me say, right, that nobody has a crystal ball. You can't, you can't predict everything, right? right? You know, we have we have technologies that are, you know, Ursula Franklin, the great Canadian physicist, said, you know, you put a technology into the world and then it kind of does its own thing, and you can't figure out all these outcomes. Um, and it's sort of, you know, it's it's a false promise to suggest that any government can. That being said, I think that there's a way of carefully scoping um, and uh, these procurements to make sure that they do what they that the technology 
is only going to do what it does. Um, and then to have a process to, you know, revisit um, unintended uses, right? Um, uh, you know, which is very high level. Um, and you know, let me let, let's go with the traffic uh, light controller as an example. Um, that's a that's a technology which is seems like a great idea, but it has to be understood to be embedded in in a broader set set of policy discussions, right? Do we really want traffic to move quickly? Um, you know, that's good for people in cars. It's not so good for people on bikes or on foot. Um, you know, it it encourages people to drive instead of take transit. So the technology itself um, does a certain set of things, but it has to be understood to be participating in a broader policy debate about how we move around in cities. And we can't automate that part, right? We right. have to sort of understand it to be a tool. It's a hammer that we're going to use to help build a house, right? But the, the hammer isn't leading the whole process of designing the house. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. You talk about uh, technologies being unpredictable in terms of the way they develop. I take what you're saying. But, uh, to me, the most unpredictable thing on the planet is human behavior, which is why I've never understood the promise of automated vehicles, um, because, you know, they rely any any automated system relies on an AI that has been taught. Right. To do pretty much the same thing again and again and again and again. It's not prepared for a human being to act irrational right right so when you get like you know when you get people talking about well we're going to have like you know automated ubers or taxi bots or things like that i i keep thinking of um total recall um you know where the taxi bot obviously doesn't work and arnold schwarzenegger has to rip the robot out and take control of the car himself right, right. um you know i mean are these these are legitimate concerns are they not oh they're totally legitimate concerns and the um you know if every car was automated and there was nothing else on the road besides cars, then you could, you know, if you have enough, you know, cloud processing capacity, that could work, right? right. But when there's a mixed system, it's not going to work. Um, and it's, uh, and, you know, there's, you know, the whole concept of automated vehicles has sort of gotten a little bit sidelined by the pandemic right you know before the pandemic that was you know uber's big promise and um, there was a lot of you know there was a lot of conversation about it and one of the things that came up frequently is this um the use of autonomous vehicles in mixed traffic and um and how does you know if you if you create a system where um you know that's suited for autonomous vehicles you're actually dialing back on the ability of uh non-autonomous vehicles and specifically pedestrians and right. cyclists to move through those spaces because they're not always easily identified by the onboard um you know sensing devices so uh so your comment is absolutely uh, you know well taken there are there are definitely applications for autonomous vehicles like you you have 
these giant distribution centers, right? And uh, you know the, you know they're very structured. They could be controlled. They're closed environments. You can, you know, like airports, you could say, okay, well, you know, the the ground vehicles go here, and the ground crews go there. The planes go yet another place. Uh, and so those are actually not a bad, you know, those are places where autonomous vehicles can actually work quite well, right? Sure. In traffic, I think that we're in rush hour traffic. Maybe well. we are. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the other interesting thing that I find about um, the, the the sort of utopianism of um, the uh, technologists who um, promote um, smart cities and smart city technology and what um, Sidewalk Labs refer to as building a city from the internet up mm -hmm. is that we have seen repeatedly, whether it's the dot-com uh, bubble bursting in the early 2000s, or the Cambridge Analytica scandal, uh, or any number of, um, you know, issues with surveillance capitalism of the kind that Shoshana Zuboff writes about in her book from 2019, which I think is one of the scariest books of the last four or five years. Um, we've seen the downside of technology when it's applied in this sort of broad-based utopian um view why, why can you explain why there's still this sort of idea that well it may be different if we're able to build a city that's you know that's totally tech-based like why why have people not learned these lessons already do you think this is a really interesting question i you know is it because human beings are capable of optimism you know <laughs> we, we or, or that we we dream um you know, there are lots of, you know, there are lots of people working in the software business who, you know, who grew up, you know, watching science fiction movies or reading science fiction novels where people were talking into their phones, into their watches, and they had like, you know, they had what became cell phones and smartphones. Yeah. Uh, so the, the notion that something fantastical um, that can you know, can mature into a thing that we have in our society exists. We also have this idea, which goes a long, long way back, of people dreaming of what perfect ideal society would look like and how it would function. And so for whatever reason, and I don't know whether this is, uh, you know, this is something that's grounded in human nature or in Judeo-Christian, um, you know, uh, sort of civilization or whether it's, you know, where it, it's located, but this notion of moving towards this ideal state exists. Right. And, uh, you know, when you marry that with, uh, you know, with modern capitalism and its ability to sort of produce things, uh, you know, you get, uh, you know, you get a sort of a high powered version of that where you could say, okay, well, we're going to use these devices, these things like that, you know that are the you know the descendants of telephones um and we can you know we can change the world with them um which is true we know we can change the world with them like i mean all you have to do is look at what social media has inflicted on the world to understand that these technologies are capable of changing the sure. world um and you know why we think that you know we could always do better I think is a philosophical question more than a technology question. Right. Right. Well, one of the things that you talk about in in dream states is the idea that cities are essentially organic 
environments like that they they develop organically and yeah. oftentimes not the way urban planners urban planners expected them to because humans right. will congregate in various groups in in ways that that serve their purposes do you think it's even possible to sort of reverse engineer that process no i no i think that um you know we're we're living in a highly urbanized period of time you know the you know in 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 OECD countries, like the level of urbanization is sort of 75 to 80% of the population are living in urban areas. It's sort of 50% in the developing world. But it's, you know, and I think the number, I think the date was 2008, when the, the world passed 50% urbanization. And so these are very large places. Um, you know, I was in Mexico City a little bit earlier in the fall. And it's there are 22 million people in Mexico City. It's like a giant, giant thing. Um, it's got so many things going on with it. It's so human. It's so vital. There's so right. much energy about it uh, that it's really the height of hubris to believe that any set of inventions can be bigger than that. Um, so before we talk about the debacle of Sidewalk Labs in Toronto, you point to a number of places in around the world that have, um, you know, that have attempted smart city environments, right. smart city environments from the Middle East to Barcelona to, to um, uh, Beijing. Can you can you isolate one that has been more successful than the others? Yeah, I think that. Um, let me think about this. Uh, let me answer a slightly different question. Sure. So the, the examples where they are built from scratch, like um, Songo in in uh, South Korea, tend to be very sterile, and they're not, uh, you know, they're not great uh, urban spaces. Um, there's a lot of there are a lot of failed experiments. There are places where, uh, you know, where smart technologies are sort of embedded in the urban environment. And it works well. And, you know, I mean, I think that I could give you a really specific example. And these, um, so, you know, for many, many years, um, you know, our society has not had a really healthy conversation about mental health right. and has deprived people of access to mental health resources. And so, you know, during the pandemic, we all sort of had this kind of wake up call about you know, the incidence of mental health and the implications of it. Um, and then we all started doing what you and I are doing now, which is talking over Zoom. And so, um, so there are layer. So the, one of the healthy consequences of that is that a lot of, you know, mental health counseling went online, went right. into this kind of mode. And right. there are layers of, there are layers of inputs there. There's the digital infrastructure, um, of wires that exist in cities and between cities there are decisions by you know by health organizations and by public you know by governments there's you know private you know private interests involved uh, and one of the outcomes is that people are able to access the service you know from their homes without trekking halfway across the city uh, and they're better for it right so that that's like an example where it where um it it was organic we have to say that this was an organic adaptation of uh ad adaptation of a you know a technology like right. you know um 
video conferencing, um, very healthy and didn't attempt to change everything. Right. Like, I think that that was, that's, it, it's inserted into our society, just like many other things are inserted into the society, um, as opposed to trying to sort of, you know, build a giant edifice over the society right. that will change everything. It's interesting that you talk about a giant edifice. I'm reading uh, Joshua Kane's book, Sideways, which is about um, the the uh, attempt by Alphabet through Sidewalk Labs to build a smart city lab on the uh, Toronto waterfront. And one of um, Dan Doctoroff's uh, earlier um, schemes back when he was in New York, um, when he was working on the Hudson Yards and things like that, was a, a gather to build a dome over a smart city, which would control right. the weather and, um, you know, kind of things that that human beings were never really meant to control. So, you know, that right. seems like a very outsized ambition to begin with. Um, then Sidewalk Labs comes into Toronto and starts negotiating with Waterfront, uh, with the Waterfront and uh, the municipal government gets involved. Um, the provincial government gets involved. The federal government gets involved. And it just becomes a huge debacle. Uh, can you sort of encapsulate, in your view, what went wrong with the Sidewalk Labs' attempt to create this smart environment on Toronto's waterfront? I'm going to come back to the tail wagging the dog um, metaphor, cliche, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they they responded to a request for proposals that Waterfront Toronto issued in 2017, um, which was very open-ended and not well-written, uh, and came in and said, you know, we, we've got these utopian ideas about building a city from the internet up. And, uh, but they weren't very specific about what exactly it was that they wanted to do. They had some specific ideas that, you know, they were, that they put in the window. Uh, and then a lot of the rest of it was um, it felt like they were almost making it up as they were going along or that they weren't really revealing what their true intention was. Right. And, uh, you know, I like I, you know, I covered the sidewalk labs thing from the very beginning and I always took issue with this word labs. Right. I, you know, I I'm interested in city building. I like the I like the whole conversation around what city building is, but I don't think that city building is provisional. It's not, you know, we don't live in Petri dishes. We don't, we're not sort of guinea pigs, right? We live in cities We're we're here. And um, the idea that some corporation with endless resources, like they had a hundred billion dollars in cash on their books when, uh, when Google was, uh, you know, promoting this idea uh, just seems, just seemed problematic. And um, I think that you know, uh, there was a lot of attention, right? There was, a, there was internationally, there was a ton of attention on what they wanted to do. Um, and, you know, you, you know, you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, right? They got all that scrutiny and, um, you know, the scrutiny revealed that there were a lot of problems with privacy, with, um, you know, with, you know, a seemingly un, like lopsided deal between Waterfront Toronto and Sidewalk, um and on and on and that i think is you know uh that kind of gives a an encapsulation of what happened um plus the fact you know you referenced cambridge analytica is that they their arrival and the 
you know, the slow reveal of what they wanted to do straddled the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Right. Um, and so they, so this idea was cooked up pre-Teclage, but it landed on the ground with thud post-Teclage. And right. I believe the timing was highly determinative of how this thing played out. The whole issue of privacy, I find fascinating. Um, and uh, I, I remember vividly back when Sidewalk Labs had their Toronto offices in that building on Quayside. Um, I rode by in a bus one day and right above the building was a billboard that Apple had bought out that was crowing about how Apple cares about privacy. Right. You know, and I thought that was hilarious, um, that, you know, that, that a, a competitor was was basically, you know, giving the gears to Google. Um, but but are these how legitimate are these concerns about um, privacy, about company surveillance, particularly when you're dealing with a company like Google that is very opaque in terms of how its algorithms run, and how much information it's uh, mining from each individual that uses it? I think the privacy debate around Sidewalk was um a little miss it, it missed the mark to some extent i think that um a lot of people when they tuned into what was going on with sidewalk were concerned and or were told they should be concerned about the the capturing of data on me as an individual person moving through public space right, right? and that that would that I, you know, my identity would somehow be captured. I would be marketed to because I was near some store or whatever. Um, and I don't think actually that was the main issue. The main issue was that they were going to gather a huge amount of data about the way people move through public space, the way they exist in the buildings that are that were to be built in this, right. you know, in the Keyside area, and that this data then could be sliced and diced and turned into some sort of marketable software application that would be either sold back to you or would be sold to the city or would right. be sold internationally. And so your data um, was, it the data would be aggregated and they were said it would be anonymized, um, but it's the use of the aggregated data, which is problematic. Plus the fact that some of these surveillance technologies do use, rely on, you know, capturing data that can be de-anonymized and right. um, or you know or is just you know video video uh, uh you know video images that could be you know where there was never any anonymity right so right. it's it, it's that part um and so so this is a very theoretical answer right so let me just give you a more specific answer so you say you have a park and you fit it out with sensors because you say, okay, well, we want to find out which parts of the park people are using, which parts they aren't using. Um, and then we can, you know, we could adjust accordingly and et cetera, et cetera. And so you sort of fit out the whole park with sensors and, you know, that are suitably de-anonymized. But then what do you do with that information once you've got it? Um, you know, do you, let's say this, these sensors pick up activity in the middle of the night. and it's like, okay, well, what are we going to do with that information? Well, right. you know, maybe we should, you know, maybe we should alert the authorities because there's people in the park in the middle of the night. Um, and so there's there's ways of activating that data in, you know, in a negative sense, you know, in a way that violates people's freedoms. 
um, and people's ability to move through public space. And, right. you know, I always said this, so I, I spent the pandemic walking with my dog a lot, right? <laughs> um, we went on long walks. It was great. It was good for her. It was good for me. Um, and I always thought to myself, because I was working on this book during the pandemic, is like, why does anybody need to know what route I'm pursuing with right. a dog, right? Like, what, you know, why is that information relevant to anybody but me? And it's not, right. actually. Right. Um, and, you know, one of the things about cities that's a great thing about cities is that you can move anonymously through a city. And we should be very, very careful about how we undermine that um, freedom in right. because that is one of the essential things about living in cities. The other thing that, that kind of frightens me about the idea of smart cities is the what's called the digital divide. And this uh, has to do with um, the people who can afford technology versus the people who can't afford technology. Right. Um, and I know that you, you've been very concerned with, um, you know, the issue of um, underprivileged communities, especially in Toronto, um, uh, you know, in your, in your previous work. Um, and I remember attending a talk that Ken Greenberg gave um, before the pandemic uh, at, the, at the Masonic Hall, where he was talking in very um positive terms about uh, what the city did under the gardener to um build um like sort of domed restaurants where you know the city right. elites could go and have a fine meal under the gardener in the winter and it was all heated and you know it was beautiful what he didn't talk about was that in order to build that they had to displace an entire tent city of homeless people right and and i wonder you know what the unintended consequences or what you can foresee the unintended consequences of the dream city being in that respect like how would it impact adversely or would it impact adversely the homeless community um the the um, communities that that rely on affordable housing and food banks and so on and so forth so here's what i think about the digital divide so in the pandemic we had like a really intense education on uh the implications of that digital divide because right. so many people had to rely on you know on you know computers or the smartphones um, for life-saving information about how to navigate this thing that nobody had experienced before where do you get vaccines what do you do if you you know you feel crappy etc cetera, etc cetera. so we know exactly that that access to digital information, you know, both in terms of the infrastructure, right? You know, digital networks and wireless connectivity, and then the devices that are attached to the end of those connections, um, you know, have a life and death um, role. You know, they they were critical for children, you know, children who had to learn virtually. Um, uh, and if you, you know, if your parents didn't have a Wi-Fi connection or didn't have a laptop, you know, they were suddenly excluded from this, you know, this great collective institution we know as the public education system. Right. And so, so, you know, beyond the examples that you cite, I mean, what I would say is that, you know, we could ask this question, everybody has access to clean drinking water, right? It's a thing that we do in our society. So I say in the book that, you know, the provision of clean drinking water initially, you know, way back in the 17th, 18th century was a private commodity delivered yeah. by private companies, but it became a public good. And, you know, we still don't get this idea that digital connectivity should be a public good. It should be a, it should be a piece of infrastructure available to everybody 
just like water and you know um, sewage mains and all of those things that are vital to human well-being. Um, I, I mean, it may be more difficult than that because you say everybody has access to clean drinking water. I I could cite numerous uh, indigenous reservations that don't have access to clean drinking water. At this I point. totally take your point. Um, the uh, so let me just narrow the remarks to the context of urban society, right? right. right? So, um, uh, and in urban societies, we do know that there's this, you know, there's been an increase in polarization uh, within uh, cities between. Uh, you know, those who are very rich and those who are really operating on the margins. And this has become a more stressful situation with rising cost of living and so on. And so uh, to my mind, this is, you know, this is table stakes. You have to take, you have to take the cost, the private cost of accessing information off the table, just as you do in remote remote communities, right? Like, you know, I mean, the access, you know, uh, digital accessibility in remote communities, way worse than in cities, right? Uh, So, but, you know, for somebody living in a tiny community in the Northwest Territories and somebody living in downtown Toronto, there are, you know, there are common features, which is that to access the type of information that kept people alive during the pandemic, you need this piece of infrastructure. And uh, we haven't really done a great job in delivering it because we still see it as a private commod- a private good delivered by private companies. Right. You you mentioned the pandemic uh, numerous times. Do you think that the experience that we had during the pandemic where we were all so reliant on this um, digital technology, do you think that has brought us any closer to the realization of what you call a smart city or a dream state? Um, do you think that, that, you know, it's given us sort of a more practical idea of how these technologies might be used? Yeah, I think that I I would completely agree with that assessment. I you know there, it's interesting that the smart city brand kind of uh, tapered off after, you know, with the pandemic and with you know with Google going sideways as Josh puts it in his book. Uh, <laughs> but you know our reliance on digital technology just went completely skyrocketed, right? Like right, right. Uh, and you know even though people are moving back to you know their offices in some cases. You know, the pandemic and the way it changed the way we kind of go about our lives and the way it digitized certain parts of the way we go about our lives is, um, you know, is profound and won't go away anytime soon. Uh, and what it what we saw is that it was that people were able to adapt to technology to problems that they had in their real lives. And one of the criticisms of Sidewalk was that they were saying, these are the problems and here are the solutions we're going to sell to you to solve those problems. And people were looking at it as like, well, we already solved these problems in these ways. So right. why are we buying this stuff from you? Uh, and I'll go back to, you know, my online mental health counseling example, right? Uh, you know, when Zoom and, you know, Google came up with video conferencing, they were not thinking about, you know, connecting a counselor in, you know, in Hamilton with a client in Kapuskazing, but that's the way, right? You know, but that that solution emerged in response to a set of problems, and that's the way it should be, right? That right. that that's a healthy development because it 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 puts the cart before the horse. It puts the horse before the cart. Right. Right. The cart before the horse. 
So in, in Canada, where we have uh, multiple levels of government, where we have um, competing interests in a city like Toronto between um, public interests, private interests, the people who own the waterfront versus um, the people who own the Rogers Centre versus um, Bay Street financiers, and so on and so forth, how how much do you think is going to have to change or how far away are we from realizing the dream of creating a, a city that is is truly would fit the the bill of being a smart city i don't want to create a smart city. <laughs> That's not my dream my dream is my dream is uh you know sort of cities that are more equitable and accessible right. and um inclusive uh and those kind of cities do require technology, absolutely, 100%. Um, uh, you know, every city, every city on earth is this, you know, is the, you know, represents this complicated dance between the private and the public. Um, and, you know, the, it is incumbent on public authorities to make sure that that balance is well calibrated, that the public doesn't overwhelm the private, but that the private doesn't sort of grow so that the public becomes sort of an add-on and you know the the lesson of the whole smart city uh push in the two in the 2010s and the culminating with sidewalk is that we need these technologies to be solving actual problems that exist in the world um and get away from this notion of this journey of discovery like we're going to create this thing and it's going to do all these you know it's going to you know sort out all our problems and then we'll have a utopia because we never get utopias and we don't actually want to get we don't want to live in utopias because utopias are essentially dystopian and um so the so i challenge the premise and uh, what i what i don't challenge is that we need all of these tools just like the you know the victorians in london in the you know the late 19th century needed better ways of dealing with wastewater because their city was becoming completely unlivable and that required investment ingenuity and then they moved to a solution and that's i think a healthy relationship between urban society and technology John Lawrence, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, the book is Dream States, Smart Cities, Technology, and the Pursuit of Urban Utopias, published by Coach House Books. It's a fascinating read and uh, I think a very relevant one. John, thank you so much for spending the time with us on the Ottawa Writers Festival podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for your interest. That was Stephen Beattie in conversation with John Lawrence about his Basili Prize winning new book, Dream States which is available now from Perfect Books and other independent booksellers across the country. This concludes our 25th anniversary season, but we're back in January with season six of Writers' Festival Radio and a book launch for David Johnson, Canada's 28th Governor General, and his forthcoming book, Empathy. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and Midwinter best wishes to you all. On behalf of all of us here at the festival, we look forward to connecting with you again in the new year. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>